Welcome to the Unwritten Life Podcast, where we share that your deepest pain can lead to your biggest gain, and that your story is still unwritten. Now introducing your host, Tim Sawhook. Welcome to the show today, everybody. I'm so excited to have you here for another episode of the Unwritten Life Podcast. As always, I am your host, Tim Sawhook, and I am excited to be here today to share another message of hope with you guys today. But before we get into the show, like always, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, I'm loving the downloads on the podcast. You guys are really doing your part and showing up and sharing the podcast and having other people listen to it. And I really appreciate that because like we say all the time, the mission is hope and the message of hope and encouragement in the story of being unwritten is huge. And it really means a lot to people. It really gives them a perspective and a chance to think, hey, if these people can get through these things, maybe what I'm going through isn't quite as bad, and I can get through it too. So all of you downloading and sharing it and talking about it makes a big difference, and I greatly appreciate it. Well, before we get into the show, here is a word from our sponsor, Exclusive Travel Partners. Are you ready to pack your bags and get away? Let exclusive travel partners help you plan the perfect vacation. From all-inclusives on the beach to your own European vacation or taking the family to Disney World, we are here to match the perfect vacation to your needs and budget. And best of all, our service is always free. Contact us at ExclusiveTravelPartners.com. Mention code UNWRITTEN for a $25 travel credit to use on your next vacation with us. At Exclusive Travel Partners, you are always the VIP. Well, like I promised at the top of the show, we have another amazing story for you today. This story comes from a woman who is a breast cancer survivor, and not only is she a survivor within her own home, she took her impact and her survival story outside her walls into her community and beyond. Here is my conversation with Jan Middleton. Well, I'd like to welcome Jan Middleton to the show today. Jan, how are you doing? Doing great. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. For anybody who knows Jan around here in the Kings community, um, she's very connected and she has an amazing story. And my wife has been begging me forever since I started the podcast back in February to ask you to come on the show to share your story. So I'm so glad that I've got you today. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be asked. I appreciate it. Oh, great. Well, like I do with everybody, before we get into the meat of your story and stuff you're going to share today, tell me what it was like before, like, you know, when you guys got married or where your story kind of starts. Okay. So um, I grew up in northern Ohio in a small town called Vermilion and started in the lighting and electrical industry, um, actually, when I was in high school through an office education program. Oh, nice. That transferred me to Indiana, and that's mm-hmm. where I met my husband. We were set up on a blind date at a wedding. And we actually got married uh, <laughs> in Disney. This was before um, Disney weddings even existed. We were we were kind of a what? Part of yes. So yes. you had you were the original Disney fairy tale wedding. Yes, but we only paid three hundred dollars. Oh man, <laughs> this has to be a whole different podcast some other time. We can get a, a deeper dive yeah. into this Disney wedding story. Yeah, pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, so we got married at Disney. Um, and then uh, we had our son, Tyler. He is now 22. Mm-hmm. And uh, while we were living in Indiana, and then I got transferred to Georgia. And uh, that's where Jillian, our youngest, uh, she mm-hmm. is 14 now. That's where she was born. And um, Georgia just wasn't, wasn't where we were supposed to be. We're both Midwest people. So mm-hmm. uh, after seven years there and over 20 years in the industry, 
uh, we said we're going to put two resumes out and see which one gets a job first back close to family. Right. And uh, I ended up and got an offer from a company in Blue Ash okay. in 2006. And so that's how we ended up here in Cincinnati is uh -huh. um, transferred um, with the lighting company then. So. Well, that's awesome that it brought you back home, close to your home, you know. Yes, be here. driving distance. Yeah, yeah, definitely driving distance, not Georgia or right. uh, Indiana. <laughs> so right. that's cool. So you guys basically started your life different places with different jobs, kind of different couple states. You wanted to get closer to home, two resumes out, we'll find out what sticks, and you're back here in Ohio. Right. So when you got back to Ohio, I would guess you didn't have too many connections here where you moved to? Yes, so we have no family in the area, mm -hmm. and really, um, so Brett um, was on the road, so that was really even harder for him, because, you know, you make friends with who you work with, right? Right. Um, it's kind of your first connection, and then through your kids, and so uh, we were slowly starting to meet people through uh, school, like I joined the PTO, I remember Tyler was a, a fifth grader at Columbia, which they mm -hmm. were amazing, um, to bring a, a new student in, in the middle of the year. Right. Um, that was a great, great move for him. And so I started, you know, getting to know people through work um, that I met there in Blue Ash. So that was really kind of our, our network for the mm -hmm. first year. So what was your life like on a day-to-day -day basis? Everything going well? The kids are happy, healthy? Yeah, yeah. So we were, we were just adjusting to life in Cincinnati, um, exploring, I guess, exploring the area, and then also right. being able um, – to go home on the weekends if we wanted, <clears throat> excuse me, a two and a half, three hour, four hour drive, either direction was able to connect us to family. So we um, mm -hmm. appreciated that. Love being back here in the fall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, we were just not Georgia people. <laughs> we, were just, uh, we were just Midwest people. Yeah, I think once you grow up in the Midwest and you have a, a sense for the seasons changing, you know, you go through the crazy humidity being around here and then, but the starts to get cool. The fall comes in, leaves are changing colors. Um, there's a lot of people who leave and want to come back cause they miss their seasons, you know? Right. Um, right. I think I could trade off being in some sunshine all the time and I'd probably would miss the seasons a little bit. So right. I understand the draw. If you're here and you grow up that way, <laughs> you want that, you want that like right this time of year right now, everyone's like, right. okay, let's drop the temperatures, the 50, let's get some sweatshirts out. Yes. bonfires and curl up so yeah. <laughs> that's kind of where we're at yeah. this time of year um, and for our kids you know they um it seemed like where we were at in georgia there was a lot of people that were transplanted and so we had a great network but um tyler was old enough then that he would come and spend a week or two in the summer and i remember one time him saying like you know i just think i want to live here instead with all of our family and i just remember that broke my heart that my kids Aww. were growing up Mm -hmm. You know, without they were seeing these family celebrations they were missing and things like that, and yeah, and just really important. And we've been able to participate in those things since we've been back. Yeah, that's awesome. Family and community is huge. You know, yes. um, especially when things get tough in our lives and we really need people and family to come alongside us. It's very amazing to have that support system. So it's good that you were able to come back and to tap back into that. Yes. So. As your life's evolving here back in Cincinnati area, kids are going, getting older and you're getting more involved. Where does your story start to take a turn or start to really take its roots in your life? Sure. Um, so in 2007, then I uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer. My mom actually was diagnosed September 11th, 2001. Oh, so no. certainly, yeah, like a date you don't forget. 
So um, even though I was in my 30s, I was already going for annual exams, never had an issue. And um, in July of 2007, I started having some pain mm -hmm. in my right breast. And, um, you know, they say breast cancer doesn't hurt. But I remembered uh, when my mom was diagnosed that she even mentioned that, that she mm -hmm. had pain with hers. And so I went to just, um, you know, my family doctor and they were like, well, we don't really feel anything. But with your mom's history, let's just go ahead and do a mammogram. You, you know, you're not due for a couple months. And really, I think that probably saved my life that um, they didn't brush me off because right. I went that week and they were able to get me in, with, which was crazy, just within a couple days. And uh, I had a mammogram at nine o'clock in the morning and um, a biopsy at one o'clock and mm -hmm. a diagnosis was given at six o'clock, which again, completely unheard of. Wow. Um, people now that go weeks and weeks in this process and mm -hmm. it still boggles my mind that, and I feel like um, actually my surgeon that day was Dr. Kerlakian, mm -hmm. who uh, he's a general surgeon and I always called him an angel because he's amazing it was Friday afternoon and he just said to the nurse, like when he did that biopsy, I don't want her to wait all weekend. Right. Um, you tell the lab I need an answer today. And he called me at six o'clock and said, I didn't think this was cancer, but it is. And um, yeah, the whole world kind of, flipped upside down at that point. Let me ask you a question. I want to go back in your story, but I really want to tap into what you talked about, about your world kind of flipping at that moment. So what was it like uh, being a woman, knowing that your mom had cancer and then, you know, to keep an eye on that, were you always kind of waiting like a grenade was going to be pulled anytime and it's going to kind of blow up in your life during when you were growing up like that? Right. That's a good question. And honestly, no, my mom, um, very blessed that she was diagnosed stage one. She had since um, she was diagnosed again uh, 12 years later. So I was diagnosed in between her first and second diagnosis, mm -hmm. but she, um, she didn't have to do chemotherapy. Hers was caught very early, um, a very slow growing non-aggressive cancer. And um, my mom and I are very, very different. I, I was speaking to a woman's group at a church last night and said, if you knew my mom, if you were around her for an entire week, you would never know that she was a breast cancer survivor. <laughs> There's no pink. She doesn't talk about it. She literally went through it, put it in a box, wrapped it up, and was done. And done. Um, and, and so, no, I didn't really worry because um, I have two older sisters, and mm -hmm. they, would, they were the ones that were getting called back for biopsies and questionable mammograms. Right. And with me every year, they were just like, you're great. You're clean. We'll see you next year. Okay. So, um, I honestly, and I can remember that morning um, on Friday the 13th, it was one of these beautiful fall mornings, and mm -hmm. I was like driving down there. I had never been to Clifton um, because we hadn't lived here that long, so I didn't sure. know where I was going, um, and I just was thinking, God, what a beautiful Friday morning. I can't wait for the weekend. I mean, I just was not nervous, right. and, um, and then, you know, you, you do the, the first set, and then uh, the nurse came back in and said, well, you know, he kind of wants to take another set. And still in my mind, I don't think I was, I wasn't freaking right. out at that point. And then she comes back in and says, the radiologist would like you to come downstairs. And of course, then, you know, the tears start flowing and I walk mm -hmm. in and I can remember this handsome young doctor that looked like he was not old enough to be a doctor. He touched <laughs> my arm and I was just like, I just completely lost it. I thought this is bad. And, um, I tried to argue with him. Right. <laughs> I was like, you aren't the person to tell me that I have cancer. We have to do a biopsy. And he was like, no, you look at these screens. Look at right. January. Look at September and tell me what you see. This, this is a, you know, 
this is cancer. I have no doubt. So right. uh, Brett was actually, I didn't know where, somewhere in Indiana because mm -hmm. he traveled. And um, so I was alone down there and, you know, called him. I don't think he could even understand what I said as soon as I got off the phone with him. Right. I remember calling um, one of my best friends in Georgia mm -hmm. and talking with her, called my sister who immediately got in the car um, and started driving down from Northern Ohio. And then I almost passed out and um, they put me on an x-ray table. I mean, it's just funny the things you remember, right. you know, I well, just remember saying like, I'm going to pass out. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you that. Cause I told you I wanted to go back to that moment and you said your life forever flipped around on that day. So is your life as you know it today before and after your diagnosis, do you feel like you're two different people? The yes. before Jan and now the after Jan? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for anybody when it, and I don't know that it's necessarily just a cancer diagnosis, but when you have something in your life like that, that right. um, really makes you realize, you know, and I was, I was young, I was, you know, 39, kind of in what you think the prime of your life and right. you're going to live forever. And, um, you know, kids were doing well. And, and then you go through until you get the final results of your pathology. Mm -hmm. You don't know. I mean, you don't know if you're going to be told you're stage four and you have months to live. Right. Or, you know, was I going to be told it was like my mom's cancer and it was stage one and very treatable. So um, that, that unknown is by far the, the worst part. And I tell anyone that when they're diagnosed mm -hmm. that, that, if you think it's going to get worse, trust me, this is the worst part. All the appointments, the unknown, the, right. you know, you're second guessing things, you're, mm -hmm. you know, should you go to another doctor? That's a horrible, horrible part of it. Well, let me ask you two questions about that process. Tell me one, when you first were told that you had cancer, he tells you then, how long was it before you knew what stage it was, if it was treatable, you know, if you had just days or months to live? And what was it like in that time frame? Like, what were you okay. thinking? What were, what was the biggest fears or the unknowns? That's the kind of stuff our people listen to. I really right. want you to be able to tap into that so they can hear what was going on in your mind at that time. Sure. Sure. So like I said, I can clearly remember that the call came at six, but I will say that uh, when I left that surgeon's office, mm -hmm. he was so optimistic and he I just felt like he was an angel, like I said earlier, because he gave me a little bit of hope. I can remember driving home because we were in separate cars right. and talking to a friend on the phone. And I was like, he really doesn't think this is cancer. Even though the radiologist said it is, the surgeon doesn't think it is. And, and I'm like, I'm going to hang on to that, you know, until he calls Absolutely. me. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, so my sister got here. The, the, we didn't tell the kids anything when they came home from school. They were just like, why is Aunt Kay here? And we're right. like, she's here for a weekend to hang out. And, um, and then once we got the call, she immediately got the kids. And I don't remember, probably said, let's go get ice cream or let's go get dinner so that Brett and I could have um, some time to Figure you know, out. freak out, cry. Um, and then, um, yeah, so I think we called, um, you know, immediate family. Mm -hmm. And then she came back and we sat down with the kids. Jillian being three had no concept really of what right. we were talking about. Um, Tyler, that was harder. Um, being 11, you know, we, we just said, you know, um, I have breast cancer. And what we tried to do was talk about people that he knew that had cancer that were survivors, which mm -hmm. I think is a really, really great thing to do when you're trying to share this news with kids is definitely don't say, remember grandma died from right. cancer, right? 
you want right. to say, listen, you know, do, do you even know that Grandma Deal has has cancer and she's had it twice and she's doing fine? And did you know our neighbor Judy has, you know, had breast cancer? And, and um, mm-hmm. but his he was very quiet and he basically, you know, no matter what examples we gave him, he just looked at me and said, "Does this mean you're going to die?" No, oh, man. Um, that was tough because you don't know the answer at this point, right? You still, right. you just know you have cancer. You don't know what the prognosis or stages. Let and, me, let me ask you a question right now. Yes. Being the, obviously this was all new to you. You had never had cancer before. You never had to have a talk with your children, your spouse, uh, things no. like that. <laughs> now knowing what you do know and the experience you've had in your community and working with so many people, what would you tell someone who's finding out they have cancer and that they have to have a talk with their children? You know, I know you briefly just touched on it. What is something you would maybe do differently or other tools that you know that exist now is a better way to explain to a child, even, even an older child, what that right. is? Right. Well, I think the way that we shared the news was, was good um, that, mm-hmm. you know, we had given ourselves time to cry and, and, and be calm and washed our faces before the kids came back Right. Uh, and, and really presented it with an optimistic attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, since going through this, like with, with Jillian, one thing that I've learned and I've used this in talking to smaller children, um, you know, is there's books out there that, um, but again, I didn't know my treatment plan. So, you know, right. I didn't know if I was going to lose my hair, but there are books out there that, that kind of go through the whole process. There's dolls that have mm-hmm. um, a scarf and uh, Velcroed hair that's really short and curly. Okay. Um, so there, there's tools out there, and and so I would say, you know, probably the most important thing is is kind of take care of yourself first. Mm-hmm. Um, let it kind of settle in a little bit, and um, and try to present it, and think of those people in your children's lives that are survivors. We all know survivors, people that are, right. are surviving out there, mm-hmm. and so immediately when you give that news, I think it's a great way than to say, you know, because everybody thinks cancer. Oh my gosh. You know, right. It's terrifying. So follow that up with, okay, but think about this person. You're probably going to mention survivors to those, to your kids that they don't even realize are survivors. Wow. I like, be that. like Oh really? And I'm like, yeah. So that, that's a, you know, think those things, write them down, write those names down because again, you're emotional. Um, just none of these things have to happen fast. That's what I tell people. You, you have cancer in your body and you want it done. You want it out tomorrow. That's not going to happen. Right. Um, and it's not going to make a difference in the day, two days, three days. So just take some time, mm-hmm. breathe and pray. Right. Okay? And, and just be as calm as you can. And, and yeah, I think that's, yeah. A, I think that's amazing because when you said take care of yourself first, it always reminds me of the analogy when you're on an airplane, you know, they say if those masks drop, Take right. care of yourself first, then help your kids because right. if you're not in the right mindset. You can't help anybody. You know, if exactly. you come into your kids and you're freaking out and crying and thinking you're going to die, well, they're going to think you're going to die as well. And right. I think exactly. everything just escalates from there. So I think that's really good. All the information, especially take a breath, a day, an hour is not going to change anything and, right. you know, and figure out what's going on. So how long was it from the time you got diagnosed that you had that phone call, you're dealing with your family, to you found out what you were actually fighting? Right. So it was, so that was on a Friday, and I think we had the follow-up appointment with the surgeon, um, like on Wednesday of the next week, and uh, were able to kind of find out everything that was going on. And so 
um, my original <laughs> um, information that I was given is that it was stage one. It was caught early. Mm-hmm. Um, I the day that I got that final di- you know, that Friday when I got the diagnosis, I knew that I wanted a double mastectomy. I had no hesitation about that. Mm-hmm. I literally kind of said, these things are trying to kill me. I want them off my body. Um, and I mean, that's the way I thought of it. And luckily Brett was completely in agreement. He was like, I love you. It's, you know, it's not about the breasts. I want you right. um, to survive and whatever you decide mm-hmm. he would be supportive of. So I was very, very, that's um, awesome that, that he has always been that way. And um, they kept saying, you know, you're being too aggressive. You don't need to do this. And um, so the plan was originally that, um, they agreed then cause that you have that right. You have the right legally, um, to decide, um, the mm-hmm. outcomes of having a, um, a lumpectomy and radiation versus a double mastectomy pretty much are exactly the same as in survival, recurrence, any of those issues. Mm-hmm. So the doctor cannot force you one way or the other. You get to make that decision. And so I, I stayed true to my original thought. And, and so we had planned to do a mastectomy in um, early November. Mm-hmm. And at that time there was a new test out. And so my doctor was like, Hey, we're going to go ahead and, and send out this, this test that, you know, you qualify for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's looking at the biology of the tumor versus looking at the size of the tumor, which is what we're giving you information on today. Okay. So a week before my mastectomy, I got a phone call. And again, I can remember for whatever reason, I had come home from Blue Ash for lunch and saw this number come up and it was my oncologist's office. And I picked up and he was like, I need to see you today. And I'm like, why? Like, because this was somebody I wasn't even going to see much because I was just going to have a mastectomy and take this pill for five years. Right. And he's like, we just got test results back. You need to have chemotherapy. And, um, boy, I don't know if a diagnosis was harder or if this was harder. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seemed harder. And I don't know just because I was already stressed or right. or the fact that I was terrified of chemotherapy. Um, but, you know, he said, I know I'm throwing, you know, a big wrench in the plans. Where's your husband? Again, I was like, I don't know, somewhere on the road, <laughs> you know, find right. him, get here to the office and let's talk. And so the biology of the tumor, this test result showed that I had a highly aggressive, um, it's called a triple positive Herceptin, um, not Herceptin, HER2, HER2 positive. There we go. There okay. you go. So test results showed that um, it was HER2 positive and highly aggressive. So the younger you are, and if you have a highly aggressive HER2 positive, that is not good. Um, prior to 2007, um, mm-hmm. everything I was reading on Google was telling me that was a death sentence. Um, no matter what stage you were diagnosed, that no matter what treatment you did, you were going to have a recurrence. You were going to be stage four and you were going to die from breast cancer. Um, and thankfully, I had a great doctor that when we got in the office and he explained it, he kept saying, you're reading old information. Right. Get, get off the computer and listen <laughs> to me because I'm the oncologist. And, and he said, you know, there's this new drug, Herceptin, and uh, you now are approved for that. And this is going to be your miracle drug. I promise you, this will be your miracle drug. Oh, my gosh, that's um, amazing. Yeah, so I went and got two other opinions, which I, I highly, highly recommend um, that you go and you hear it from other people. Right. Because um, it's overwhelming. You're stressed out. You're terrified. 
have somebody with you is another big thing because, and we even took, um, you know, the little pocket recorder. Yeah. So Brett would take notes, but we also had the recorder. If we got home and had two different opinions of what was said, we could play that back. That's and really again, what he was telling us was new information. So we couldn't go on Google and, and find that. We could read new things about this drug, but mm -hmm. there wasn't enough data out there to confirm what he was telling me that this was going to be my miracle drug. But so, you know, my prognosis went from, mm -hmm. you know, early, don't have to do chemotherapy to now you're going to do chemotherapy. Let me ask you a few questions about a couple things you talked about along the way. And mm -hmm. this is even for me and the people out there who, just as far as education goes, when people talk about you're diagnosed with breast cancer and everyone says stage one through four, what is that really saying? So when people hear stage one, they think I'm good to go or two or three or four. What, what can you talk about stage one through four and what you should be sure. scared about, what's not, and what people perceive? So, so staging of cancer um, mm -hmm. is, is kind of an antiquated um, system. That's what we've used forever. And it is, it is based on um, size um, first and foremost, and then um, mm -hmm. as you go up in numbers, actually with breast cancer, you can be diagnosed with a stage zero breast cancer, okay. um, which is a precancer. So I actually had both. I had a very, very large area that had developed eight by nine centimeters mm -hmm. and nine months had grown of precancer. And then that highly aggressive HER2 positive tumor was just four millimeters. Okay. And, and, for all of that to have grown in that amount of time mm -hmm. is crazy because what we know most times with cancer is you may have it for years before it actually shows up on something or you have right. a symptom that as you okay. go um, to have something looked at. So with breast cancer, it's zero through four. Um, when you get into like three and four, those stages, that means that um, it has gone beyond the breast and through traveled through lymph nodes and then could already be settling into the most common areas. Um, first is bone, mm -hmm. and then liver, lung, and then brain. Okay. Um, and if you are diagnosed stage four when um, at any time, whether it be your primary diagnosis is stage four, right. or if you have a recurrence and go to stage four, um, that means you will be in treatment for the rest of your life. You may not mm. die from breast cancer, but you will be in some type of treatment for the rest of your life because there is no cure for breast cancer any stage. Right. But once you're stage four, meaning it has gone to another part of your body, um, you will always have to be in treatment to try to keep it at bay. So do you have, are there a lot of experiences of people who live with stage four and for forever? Um, you know, no, not possible? forever. Um, I mean, I think I've heard, you know, some like in the teens, um, I think if I've heard anybody in the 20s, mm. you know, I think years ago when, when someone that's called metastatic breast cancer, you know, um, you talked in the number of, you know, zero, one, two, three years. Right. But now, um, especially if, if it's caught um, and it's in the bone, that is the most treatable, right? Okay. Um, so the, if you metastasize to the bone, that you can see people live well over 10 years into the teens and, okay. and possibly even longer. Um, obviously once you get into your organs, liver, lungs, or brain, mm -hmm. um, but, um, every year I see people living longer and, okay. and so that's a good thing. That right? is really a good yeah. thing. Yes. Let me ask you one more question before we go jump back into your story where we were at. 
what was it like? Okay, so you got your diagnosis. You find out what your plan is going to be. You're going to have the surgery. What was it like just on a normal day for you? I mean, when you're alone with your thoughts and your fears, you're thinking about your family and your husband and your future, what was that like for you? Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> um, again, as I, you know, I tell people uh, when, you know, through our peer support program, I talk to a lot of people newly diagnosed and um, that, that part of it, I, I firmly believe is the worst part. Um, mm-hmm. because you're waiting, whether you're waiting to start chemotherapy or you're waiting uh, for a test result. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that I didn't think about my own funeral. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can um, recall, so again, Jillian was, was young, so right. I can recall putting her to bed, and um, I would go out and, and walk in the neighborhood and mm-hmm. um, cry, 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 just walk and cry. And, um, like I can remember one night running into one of my neighbors and I'm just sobbing, you know, it's uh-huh. like, Oh my gosh, you know, and I'm like, this is my therapy. This is, you know, I don't do this at home. I, right. I come out here and, you know, so she just gave me a big hug and, um, and, you know, offered support and, right. uh, but yeah, just that, that part, you know, praying that, um, I talked to God when I was walking and crying and praying and, right. and very clearly I know that that I never asked why, um, which some people will ask that, you know, why me, why me? And I don't think that was ever a question. Um, But I made a deal with God and said, if I survive, um, I promise that I I will figure out what you want me to do with this, Mm -hmm. that that I will learn from this experience and and find a way to pay it forward, do what you want me to do with this. Mm -hmm. uh, Because, Nobody knows. Like I said, no matter what stage you're diagnosed, you can recur. And really, none of us know, right? None of us know if we're going to walk out across the street tomorrow and get hit by a car. Right. Um, but, but being told you have a life-threatening disease obviously mm-hmm. makes you think more about that. Oh, and absolutely. So right or wrong, I don't know if we're supposed to make deals with God, but uh, <laughs> I, I did. And, and I feel like that was answered. Um, right. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's amazing what you talked about right there is you're talking about that nobody knows, you know. We talk about in our life, and I've shared this many times on the podcast, that when we grow up, we picture getting married, having babies, living a long life, everyone's happy. It's like you can see your life from a point A to point B. It's a straight line, right? But no one anticipates the zigzags. And right. the zigzags is where we have the biggest pain, but also the biggest growth, you know? And that growth can be in trusting God and growing in relationship with Him. Growth can be, you know, just changing personal development-wise, getting healthier, all these different things, depending on what kind of story yours is, and that the right. whole point of the purpose of the podcast is to show that your story is unwritten. You don't, you don't know what God has in store for you. Um, but what a powerful moment for you to be there having that talk. Like, please, let's make a deal. God's like, I don't make deals, but yeah, <laughs> let's uh, let's make a deal, <laughs> and uh, you know, let me live out my purpose. Show me how I can take this and make it something bigger. That's awesome. What did you feel in that moment? Just you know, hoping that he would agree, (laughs) you know, um, just wanting to see how, you know, how it would play out because again, that, that unknown, I mean, this thing had taken over my life, Mm -hmm. you know, um, that I, I just couldn't even think beyond, um, you know, did I have two years to live? Did I have four years to live? What if I, if I was going to live, what was the quality of life going to be? And as a parent, um, at that point, I was very, very adamant about, um, which I think is kind of funny when you see what my role today is, and um, 
that I didn't want breast cancer to have any impact on my kids' lives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like I can remember like going trick-or-treating and I thought, I want tonight when I walk with my kids, I don't want one person to open the door and then look at me and have that look. Um, I think this is one of the worst things um, for a cancer patient mm -hmm. is to look at someone and see them look back at you and feel like they think I'm dying. Mm -hmm. um, that's horrible. Right. And uh, like me, people always say my face is an, is an open book. I don't hide things very well. So mm -hmm. I hope I don't ever give somebody that look. Um, but that's what I wanted that night for Halloween is that I just wanted my kids to have a normal day because mm -hmm. for the whole month of September and October, our lives, you know, had been around cancer and, and trying to figure out what was going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one of the greatest things I think you can give somebody is normalcy. Right. No. Not everybody wants to talk about it all the time. Right. No, I, I completely agree with you. And, and the reason why I asked you to share some of the harder parts is that you and I talked about this on the phone a couple of days ago that, you know, when people think of breast cancer, it's always about the pink ribbons. It's about the walk. It's about the t-shirts. It's about save the tatas. It's all the, you know, not that anyone thinks breast cancer is fun or anything, but they think about the, the, the fundraising, the pink, everything beyond it. And a lot of people don't want to talk about the pain of it. You know, right. everybody has suffered a loss from somebody from cancer, unfortunately, different kinds of cancer. And so we know that pain of being left behind and someone, you know, could not win their battle or their fight. But not all the time people want to talk about the details. And that's the reason why I want to ask you, what was your nights like? You know, you're laying there, you're talking about thinking about your funeral and your family and what your quality of life looks like. So right. those things, the normalcy that like you're talking about, I think that makes people feel normal when they hear other people like, hey, you know, I used to walk the streets crying too, like a lunatic <laughs> running into people. Right. You know, that makes me feel better. So I really right. appreciate you sharing those moments. Sure, um, sure. Now for me, um, you know, when I talked about chemotherapy, that I'm not sure if that was even worse than the diagnosis. Sure. Um, my entire life, people, if they don't know my name, they say, you know, it's the girl with the big red hair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so when I talked about how easy the decision was about having my breasts removed, right. Um, to find out that I was going to lose my hair was so much harder for me. And people are like, again, something you should never say. It's just hair. Um, mm -hmm. It'll grow back. No, I mean, that is such a personal decision. And some people can totally rock it and not be phased by it. Right. But for me, that, that was a complete loss of, of my identity. Um, so you lose your hair, your eyebrows, um, mm -hmm. your eyelashes, and um, probably one of the lowest, lowest points that, that I can think of after losing my hair, which it was as bad as I thought in the beginning, um, mm -hmm. is sometimes I would drive home from work and try to take a nap at lunch. And um, I remember coming home and laying in the bed, thought I was asleep, and I don't know if this is a dream or not. And it was mm -hmm. like I was then over the bed looking down at myself and and I had this big smile on my face and then I pulled that off and it was a mask and oh, it was wow. a very, very sad face. Um, you know, no hair, nothing, but mm -hmm. just this plain sad face. And, and I just thought that's what this is like. We, we go through this, you know, I, I went and got wigs and I got different color wigs, different hair lengths and, mm -hmm. you know, would try to be like, Oh, look at me today. We try so hard, I think to make other people comfortable while we're going through this. Absolutely. And, you know, you would, you know, how are you doing today? Well, how do you think I'm doing? <laughs> you know, I'm bald. Yeah. I'm 
I'm on this drug that, you know, makes me sick for three days. I, I have achy joints from the shot that they give me to help my white cell count. Mm -hmm. um, but what do we say? Oh, I'm doing okay. Mm -hmm. I'm doing okay, thanks, right? And, and boy, that moment is just singed in my brain of that I was like, this is the reality. This, mm -hmm. this is what we do. Um, that I just kind of felt like a shell of a person at that right. point um, that I would probably was at the lowest point. Yeah, well, you know, I have a couple of points following what you said. It's funny you brought up the mask thing because we just the podcast I just had last week uh, featured someone named Bobby Gray, and she talked about her whole life wearing masks mm -hmm. um, because of all the stuff that she went through in her life that she was hiding her stuff from everybody else. And I think it's and I can't believe you brought this point up because it's so it's so true is that when we're going through pain. Everybody else wants you to feel better because it makes them feel better. It, absolutely. Because they don't, it, just, it doesn't matter what's happening. It could be a divorce. Right. It could be a sickness. They just want to feel, because they can't handle the things are being weird. You know, they can't handle right. someone in pain or whatever. So they want you to feel better so they can feel better, which is the absolutely. craziest thing when you're going through that. And the fact that you said people ask you all the time, you know, how are things going? Of course, you're saying, this is horrible. This sucks. But what do you say? <laughs> I'm doing yes. good. And this, I don't, this is a plug for another podcast that I have no association with, but it's a podcast. It's called Terrible Things for Asking because it's about what people always say. You know, we always say I'm fine, but usually things are horrible. So it's called Terrible Things for Asking. Check out that podcast. It, they kind of break down a lot of these life things. Right, um, right. And we do that. And, and that, like I say, I, and I think, again, that was God's way mm -hmm. of um, letting me be real with it. Um, like I say, I, I think that was probably one of my lowest points, um, but it was also a gift because what that does is that allows me when I'm when I'm with people mm -hmm. and I get that answer, you know, when someone comes in with a scarf or a wig or they're bald and and you know and they give me that answer like, oh, I'm doing great, you know, I you can look at them and say you can you can be real. Yeah. Tell me how you're really doing. I'm asking how are you really doing, mm -hmm. and I'm here for you. Right. You know, I want to know the good, the bad, the ugly. Or if you say you're great and then you're having a good day because you don't want to talk about this crap, I'm good with that too. Right. Well, before because I want to get back into your story, what happened with your treatment? Obviously, you lost your hair and you, you end up doing the chemotherapy. But I think it's a good point right now for you to give permission to people on how to talk to somebody who has cancer, what's going through it, because there's always the what to and what not to say, obviously that's mm -hmm. going to push you over the edge and want to choke the person or <laughs> make you feel comforted. Yes. What can someone, let's give me some what not to say. Maybe okay, just yeah, that's the easy part. And gosh, yeah. there's some great YouTube videos. I remember, and again, this is 11 years ago, um, some girl with a really cute Southern accent with metastatic breast cancer did a whole YouTube video on what not to say, and that mm -hmm. Southern accent just made it that much funnier. <laughs> um, but first of all, don't be like, you know, I'm sorry, and my aunt just died from breast cancer. Do not give examples oh, of geez. people in your life that have died. Um, oh, my gosh. You know, yeah, that I, and unfortunately, that happened a lot. Um, I think that look, you know, um, obviously, when I was healthy and, and before treatment, um, Maybe I didn't get that look, but, but when you would come into work with a scarf and you're pale and, mm -hmm. um, you know, don't give that sad puppy dog, you know, look like, oh, my gosh, you know. Right. Um, again, I, I just think be there for the person and try to figure out what they want on that day. Um, if they want to scream and cuss and throw things and take them for a ride somewhere and find something 
take a hammer and go bang on, I don't know what, <laughs> find somewhere for them to do that. Um, don't try to tell them they, they shouldn't do that, right? Don't try right. to tell somebody what their feelings should be. Um, it, it's trying to be the best friend or coworker mm -hmm. that you can be and, and pick up on that person's cues. Don't and don't try to tell them what you think they should be doing and how they should go through that. Um, I think um, mm -hmm. I'll give you an example of um, one of the most amazing things that someone did. I mentioned earlier about joining PTO. I felt like that was a, a right. great way to meet people. And I met Jane Bobel. Mm -hmm. uh, don't know if you know her. Her kids are older um, at PTO. And, and that was really the, the extent of our relationship as we saw each other at PTO. When she found out that I was diagnosed, she started sending me one handwritten greeting card a week. Sometimes it was funny. Oh, nice. I did, um, like a lot of people do, Caring Bridge today. I don't even know that that existed back then. Right. I did um, a blog to keep people updated, which I think is a great idea. Um, right. Because I did not want to answer a million phone calls after surgery, nor did I want Brett to have to do that. Uh, Jane sent me a card every week for, I know, more than a year, probably at least 15, 16 months. That That's amazing. Every single week, a card showed up from somebody that that you know was a friend through PTO. Um, and as long as I live, I will never ever forget that that she sat down and took the time every single week to write me a little message, um, handwritten inside of a card, mm -hmm. and drop that in the mail. And I think that's a lost art, right? That Absolutely. now media, you know, we write praying for you, right? Mm -hmm. um, I do it. Yeah, yeah um, prayer hands on their prayer hand emojis. Prayer hands. Yeah. Yes. But boy, to, to every week get that card in the mail. And I got tons of cards from other people, but nobody like Jane that's sure. sent a card every single week. Um, so I always say to people, there are so many things you can do that don't cost a lot of money. You don't have to send you know, a hundred dollar flower arrangement. You don't have to send, um, you know, Omaha steaks. I mean, you don't, I mean, it is as simple as writing a card that you can get at the dollar store right. um, and, and drop it in the mail. Yeah. I think it's really important you bring that up because so often when you or I or whoever is up in the middle of something, a real battle in their life, so many people will say, let me know if I can do anything for you. And you're never going to ask or something ever. Right. I mean, I, the per, that's maybe like 1% of the population will ever reach out. When you're in the middle of something, you're not thinking about, boy, I wish somebody would bring me this or that. It's just about coming alongside that person, right. sending those cards. She wasn't waiting for you to say, what can I do for you? You know? Right. She just did it. She just showed yes. up in that moment. So I think that you would also agree that's very important not to just wait for someone to ask for you to ask of them, but to, just, to come along and just be that friend. Right. And I will tell people now, learning this after the fact, like one, one, another thing that sticks in my mind about our sure. community and how much this King's community supported us because we didn't have family here. We didn't know a lot of people. So our neighborhood started bringing meals and people would ask, you know, can I pick Jillian up from school? Or, hey, I heard that you're having surgery. Mm -hmm. Can we do a play date? Um, so I did treatment from November through mm -hmm. February. And I think in January, on a below zero day, our garage door broke. And Brett said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it. I'm going to put a new garage door up by myself. And I'm like, I don't even think that's possible. I don't think that's a one-man job. You know? <laughs> I don't think that's possible. Um, and I think I sent a text to maybe one neighbor. And within hours, there was a group of men here that worked with Brett in below zero temperatures and 
put in a new garage door. That's amazing. Um, and so, yes, we had to ask, right? Because nobody knew our garage door was broke. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad that I asked. But what I have learned from some other women that I've met through this is, and I will tell people when they're diagnosed, make a list. Um, because people will ask, what can I do? And it's so hard to ask for help. But yeah. boy, if you have that note in your pocket or in your purse, <laughs> and if you say, you know what, Bob has soccer practice on Thursday nights, and I have chemo on Thursdays. If you could pick him up, and if we could just set this up right now, boom, that's off your list. That's something you're worrying about. Mm -hmm. I've had friends that, um, that are metastatic, um, so really, you know, having a hard time with treatment that their kids all put their laundry in their own laundry basket. They have a friend that picks up those laundry baskets, does the laundry, puts them back in the family member's laundry basket and delivers it back to the house. Wow. So the, the family's responsible, right, for keeping it separate. The friend drops it or picks it up and doesn't have to know who's who's, right? Right, absolutely. Um, I've seen people go take down somebody's Christmas lights. If it's the end of January and somebody's dealing with something big, and, and you know, well, I mean, we know some people like to keep them up way too long. If right. your neighbor <laughs> typically takes their Christmas lights down at the appropriate time and they're still up at the end of January or February, grab a friend and go over and take down the lights. Mm -hmm. Organize them really nice for them so it just happens. Mm -hmm. That there are just those kind of things that you can do for people. Mow somebody's yard, you know. But I think one of the best things that I wish I had done was to make a list because it is so hard to ask for help. And if I'd had right. that list, to say, you know, Jillian has cheer practice or Tyler has this, that you can pull that list out and read it and say, can you help with one of these things? No, I think that's awesome. I love that because it is like we talked about. It's so hard when people ask in the moment because one, even though you need the help, people are, we just don't like to ask for help, even though we're right. struggling hardcore. So I, I think that's amazing. That's the first time I've ever heard someone say, make a list of things you need as much as you don't want to because you will need that help. And people, yep. and people are willing to help. They really they are. are. They, they want to, and I say people feel better, right? Because I yeah. can't cure your cancer, right? Or Absolutely. I can't heal your broken heart mm -hmm. after you get a divorce. I can't do those things, but boy, if you, and, and I try to get this through to people, people want to help and they feel so good. So I'm like, as uncomfortable as it is for you, give that gift to your friend then because mm -hmm. they desperately want to do something to help you. Right. I think that's um, amazing. And, and it's, a, it's a gift that you're mm -hmm. allowing them to help you and they, they feel good. That is awesome. I know I sidetracked your story, but I had a lot of questions follow up along <laughs> what you were talking about. Yes. So obviously you end up getting the chemotherapy and stuff. What was your treatment like? Can you walk us through that in your surgeries and stuff? Yeah. So I did um, eight rounds of chemotherapy and uh, did those every two weeks, uh, two types of chemotherapy. So the, um, the first two months uh, was what they call the red devil and um, definitely earns its name. It, it kicked my butt. Um, it made me um, pretty sick, mm -hmm. but each time, you know, they would try different drugs because I continued to work full time. I felt like, you know, this company had just helped us sell our house and moved us here. Mm -hmm. So I was determined to work as much as I could. The company was good as I got further into treatment, but they set me up with a computer at home that I could do. Like at first I just took the Friday off after chemo and then further into treatment I did like Friday, Monday at home. Right. Uh, but that red devil, like literally it was almost like an out of body experience that, that it, I, the word I always use is disconnected. I felt like the, the cable to my brain was disconnected. Mm -hmm. Um, so weird nightmares, you know, that's when I kind of had the whole thing about seeing myself mm -hmm. with a mask on. Um, and, um, 
that was tough. And then in the last two months, I did a different drug that uh, allowed my brain to get reconnected, so my head was a little clearer, mm -hmm. and it came um, with uh, some pretty bad um, aching joints, lower body. Um, we had a cold winter, and I can just remember laying in bed thinking that my bones were frozen and it felt like someone was pounding them with a hammer oh, no. uh, at night. And, um, you know, there's not much they can do about that. Um, you know, you can take Tylenol or whatever, but I didn't want to go like on heavy pain meds or anything like that. Um, but you just, you just get through it. And I, again, we could not have done it without um, mm -hmm. the support. I mean, we gained so many friends during that time. We didn't know a lot of people, but but as neighbors showed up with a meal or something, people we'd never met, and they would be like, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I live on, on this street. Right. It's nice to meet you, and I signed up tonight to bring you this meal. You know, and awesome. um, it was just um, not everybody has that, and mm -hmm. uh, we live in an amazing community, and um, again, I think, you know, my brain just kept filing away all of these things that were happening, and, and little did I know that deal, right, that I made with God. Right. Uh, if I survived, these were the things, you know, the cards, the somebody helping put that garage door up, the meals, the play dates, all those right. things are being filed away of like, wow, that felt so amazing to have that support. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my family would come down, my mom and dad, but um, that was hard. Like, I, it was harder on my mom to see me go through this than mm -hmm. it was her own diagnosis. So I'm sure so when they were here, that was like kind of a weird thing going on. I could look in her eyes and see so much pain and, and suffering that, that that made it hard. Right. Sure. I, would, I just need to stay home, <laughs> <laughs> but like, you don't need to see me bald. You don't need to, you know, this yeah. is hard on you. Uh, what, and she even said it, you know, she's like, I, and little did she know she was going to be diagnosed again, but, but she had said, I wish I would be diagnosed again because I cannot stand to see you go through this. Mm. Um, so that, that was a really you, weird dynamic. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I mean, that must have been really strange seeing that in her eyes and knowing you can't take that pain away that right. she's trying to take away from you. When you were going right. through that severe chemotherapy and those drugs and stuff, was there ever a point where you're thinking, would the cancer have been any worse than what I'm feeling now? Like this is this pain I'm feeling now, was, is this really going to make me feel any better um, did you ever feel like this, is this really even working? What's the point? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I think even, you know, you think about when you have the flu, like, right, you just feel like you're going to die, right? It's horrible. So, yeah. you know, those, those first four rounds in those two months uh, and feeling so sick and disconnected, um, I know that I, I said to myself, if I ever had to go through this again, I don't know if I would agree to it mm. um, because I at that time, it seemed so bad. Sure. Now, today, if you said, okay, now you've had a recurrence and you need, you'll do it, right? You're going to fight. Um, mm -hmm. I'm healthy. I'm, I'm strong. I can, you know, if I had to do it again, I would. But um, it, it is a mental and physical, um, it's hard. Mm -hmm. But they get better and better with the drugs. Like, I can tell you, there are better drugs out there to alleviate the side effects today than there were 11 years ago. Okay. And the day before I had my first chemotherapy, I called the nurse and I said, hello, this is Janice Middleton. And I'm just calling to let you know, I don't think I'm going to show up tomorrow. Mm. And she was silent for a moment. And she said, okay, Janice, I'm calling you something in, just run by the drugstore, pick that up. We'll see you at nine tomorrow. So 
obviously I wasn't the first patient. <laughs> I'm freaking out. I'm terrified and I can't do this. So they, you know, it was Xanax or something. Right. Off so that Brett could get my butt in the car and get me there for that first appointment. And right. I got through it. And so I tell people um, before that first treatment, you know, what you see on TV is drama, right? Right. That, that, it's written that way. It's supposed to look horrific that when you see somebody on TV going through chemotherapy, they're going to make it look horrific. Mm-hmm. Go out and, and meet somebody, find somebody that you see that's working full time. Mm-hmm. People are doing much better and we have a much better quality of life than we did before. And that's because treatments are not all the same. They're learning to treat uh, the cancer based on its biology. Mm-hmm. And, and so now um, and again, we're not all getting the same dosage. I mean, right. I see so much improvement even from when I went through it, that, that people are working, not missing hardly any work, if any, sometimes, except for the day of treatment, mm-hmm. which is amazing. So tell, take me a year out after your diagnosis and after your chemo and, your, and the surgeries and stuff. What was your life looking like at that point? Um, so, you know, you think stage one, wow, you caught it early. This is going to be great. Um, so I was diagnosed in September. I did not finish my breast reconstruction until November, a year after that. Um, okay. now I, I could have finished that earlier, um, because what the procedure that I had done is where they, they place, you know, so they remove all the breast tissue and then they put this capsule, uh, inside your chest wall and mm-hmm. then they inflate it. And so what it's basically doing is stretching the chest muscle to be able to create a pocket and then to put a, an implant. Mm-hmm. in that space um, that I probably would have been ready to have that, that final reconstruction by August. Mm-hmm. And um, once I was fully expanded to where we said, okay, this is the size that, that we're going to do. Right. Um, I asked my plastic surgeon, I said, can I take a break? And she's like, what do you mean? And I said, I know these expanders, expanders are horrible. They, they don't look right. You would never have somebody that said, I'm going to just stop with expanders because these look like great breasts. They don't. Mm -hmm. They're horrible. Um, And I said, as uncomfortable as these are and as horrible as they look, I need a break. I just, I just need a break. And Mm -hmm. I said, is there any harm in us delaying swapping these out? And she said, absolutely not. When do you think you want to come back? And I said, because she goes, I don't know if I've told you I'm pregnant. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And uh, so she was going to be back from maternity leave in November. And, um, and so I delayed it until November. Um, I just needed, I needed to not be going to appointments. And, sure. um, and then also there was a drug that was added um, to my chemotherapy that I actually had to take for an additional year. So every three weeks after I finished those four months of chemotherapy, I went in over my lunch hour and had an infusion of Herceptin. Okay. Um, and that continued for a year. Um, and then after that, um, I had to have my ovaries removed because of my cancer being estrogen driven. Mm. Um, not only were my breasts trying to kill me, but my ovaries were trying to kill me. (laughs) And so then, um, into the next year, then I had my ovaries removed. So it was a really long process for stage one. And that's something I always try to tell people, like, don't tell somebody they got the good cancer or that they're Um, lucky that they got stage one. No. Right. Um, because Treatments and surgeries are lengthy, and then the recovery, right, of, of your body. Uh, one thing my doctor would say is however long that you're in 
treatment, whether that be surgeries, radiation, chemotherapy, it's going to take your body at least that long. So I kind of looked at it being a year. Right. It was going to take me another year, he said, before I could even think that I was going to start feeling normal again. Wow. That is quite the process. Now, right. let me ask you a question. This is coming from a guy who doesn't know anything about breast reconstruction. So I'm just putting that out there. Whoever's listening to this podcast, not trying <laughs> to sound like a weirdo, just asking <laughs> the process through it. Did, going through that, having the surgery, having them removed, and then going to reconstruction again, did that really help as like your identity as a woman to have that come back again? Or does that mean nothing to you? What was that process like and why, why do some do and some don't? Right. So very personal decision. Um, and um, for me, I, like I say, I knew right away that I wanted a mastectomy mm -hmm. and I knew that I wanted to have breast reconstruction. Um, I um, never thought about not having the reconstruction, but now that again, 11 years out, I've, I've met women um, that do that. And um, mm -hmm. I always say to people, because I will have people that are newly diagnosed sometimes that are just so overwhelmed with the information that they'll be like, will you tell me what to do? Will you tell me, you know, should I do this type of surgery? Because within breast reconstruction, then you have several options of mm -hmm. do you want breasts built from your own tissue, which is, that's called a deep flap, um, where they take um, tissue from your abdomen and actually build breasts. They can also do it from um, your mm -hmm. back. Um, that's a really... Um, big process, but we have um, amazing surgeons in Cincinnati that mm -hmm. are doing that. Um, I knew I wanted to have breasts. Um, and yes, I felt like it just made me feel normal. Sure. And, um, but I also knew that I wanted um, to miss, you know, again, work was kind of dictating some of my decisions that, mm -hmm. that I looked at, you know, what is the least amount of time that I can be off of work. And so that was just having, you know, a bilateral mastectomy with expanders. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, and I mean, that's Brett it. was, mm -hmm. sorry. No, go ahead. Brett was, you know, super supportive in, you know, whatever my uh, plastic surgeon didn't have a very good sense of humor. And Brett has a weird sense of humor. <laughs> I can say there were some awkward appointments when we were looking at sizes and things like that. <laughs> I thought she was going to backhand him, but, um, uh, you know, and that, that was good for me that he kept that humor and, and yeah. in the end said, you know, whatever you want to do is right. your body, your decision. I just want you here. That, that is awesome. And, you know, you can always count on your husband to go back to eighth grade humor uh, <laughs> at, at any yeah. given time. And, and it, it doesn't change. No matter, how, <laughs> no matter how old we get, we go back to the eighth grade boy and all of us. Um, so, no, but thank you for sharing that part of it because I, let, I don't yeah. think a lot of people understand the choice to or not to. And, Especially guys, we have no like no clue. Like, let's right. be honest. So that's why I want to ask that question and find out yeah. what your process was and what your thoughts were on it. Well, and I always recommend um, mm -hmm. if someone like you know if I say someone will say to me make my decision, I'm like absolutely not. I will not make your decision. Right. I will tell you how I came to my decision, and then like say that they're either deciding between surgical procedures is I will connect them to somebody that has had that other procedure, and I would say you know hear my story hear Angie's story, mm -hmm. and then make that decision. If someone is deciding between reconstruction versus remaining flat, then I will find them someone to talk to that, um, you know, chose to not have any reconstruction mm -hmm. because that, I think that helps them in making that decision. Don't sure. do it 
online, right? I mean, I always say to people, <laughs> you think a plastic surgeon is going to post pictures on their website of bad procedures? No. 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 And one thing that, that women um, with breast cancer uh, tend to do afterwards is uh, we like to show each other. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, oh, God, i got to tell you this. Literally last week at the Lebanon pink football game, mm -hmm. I had a woman that um, – chose to not have reconstruction. She had an amazing tattoo. She had a single mastectomy. So one side, she literally at the Lebanon pink football game pulled me over next to the bushes because she wanted to pull her shirt up and show me her <laughs> amazing tattoo. And I thought, you know, I've seen a lot. <laughs> never at a football game at a high school. <laughs> and it caught me off guard for a second, but it was an amazing tattoo. Um, and that's what some people do is they will have, um, gosh, hers was a wave because she said, to mm -hmm. me, cancer came in waves, right? Oh, okay. You got hit with the wave, it crashed, and then things kind of settled down, and then boom, you did treatment, and that next wave hit. So mm -hmm. she had waves tattooed across where she had no reconstruction. It was beautiful. Wow. That is <laughs> but I encourage that for women. You know, find someone that's okay with that and, and look at real results. Right. right? At the plastic surgeon's website, go and find people that have real results because this is not a boob job. Um, this is not working with what's already there and making it beautiful. Mm -hmm. This is going to be something with scars, with multiple surgeries, mm -hmm. um, where there is no, no fat left, right? That's what makes breasts beautiful is that fat that we have in that area. Now right. you're taking, you know, it's just skin and an implant. So go look at what the real examples. I think that's a great idea. And that's really good advice. So someone, let me talk to you because we, right now you, you keep talking about the things you do currently and stuff like that. So before we get into that, so let's go back to now you're years past, you're doing the re reconstruction and things like that, and here you are during this process, you're gaining strength mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, you're gaining knowledge, you're getting support, and now you're figuring out how to support other people through this. And in this process also comes back into your deal with God, right? You made mm -hmm. this deal, if you can help me get through this, then I'm going to find a way to pay this forward and make this bigger. So where did that start to take root? Okay. Um, so, again, I feel like God had his hand in this because when I was diagnosed, again, mm -hmm. we didn't know a lot of people here, but I had a few people reach out to me and say, hey, you should call so-and-so. You know, she lives in the area and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Nope, wouldn't do it. Hey, do you want to talk to or do you want to meet? Nope. So I tell people I had a complete phobia of people that had cancer. I don't care what kind of cancer it was. It was breast, any kind of cancer. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to talk to them. I didn't want to see them. Um, and in the beginning of my journey, I felt like I couldn't handle that, right? Mm -hmm. I would say, I can't handle what's going on with me. I, I surely can't hear your story too. But what I did is I found peer support through online. Um, mm -hmm. So there, there was an organization at the time called Young Survival Coalition. Mm -hmm. And um, they had a very, very active online board of young women diagnosed under the age of 45. And um, I, I went in that and all of a sudden found like, oh my God, I could go on at two o'clock in the morning when I couldn't sleep and I was convinced I was going to die and I could type on there and somebody somewhere was going to be awake and they were going to answer back mm -hmm. and be like, Jan, come on, take a breath. Right. Listen, remember, you know, think about so-and-so. She's five years out. She had the exact same diagnosis as you. Um, so it was weird for me that I did not participate in any um, person, in-person support groups, mm -hmm. um, did not make friends with people that had cancer in the real world. All of my network was online. People wow. I had never met. Uh, so then um, 
in 2000 and when did we have the hurricane? 2008, mm-hmm. right? When the hurricane came through here, um, a friend of mine said, um, let's do a uh, breast cancer walk. And I was like, eh, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if I'm ready for that, you know? And, um, they're like, no, let's do it. And, you know, we know a couple other survivors. And so I was like, okay. So I remember then after that, they do a survivor ceremony. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I was like looking around at hundreds of other women. And I was kind of like, wow, okay, this is kind of, this kind of feels good, you know, but I sure. kind of stayed on the periphery. And then that following, no, no, let's see. So in 2009 of February, I flew to Dallas and went to a, a conference, a Young Survival Coalition conference where there were 800 women diagnosed under the age of 45 mm. and that was life-changing for me um because all these people that were my virtual right support, right now i was meeting all of them spent the weekend with them and realized how good it felt mm-hmm. to be I'm surrounded sure. in, in person with people that get it right that's, sure. that's always our thing is being around people that get it and so that completely changed me from being this person that didn't want to be around people with cancer to now i was craving that Sure. I wanted to network and, and be around other people because your hair grows back, you, you know, your family, everybody's like, don't you kind of want to get over it, right? Move on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're not ready to do that and mm-hmm. you still need that support. You're taking drugs. You know, there was a drug that I was supposed to take for 10 years that had right. crazy side effects and um, nobody wants to hear about that for 10 years. But if you talk to someone else that's taking that same drug, sure. that can make you feel better. And you might have some tips and tricks for each other of tolerating that. So, well, yeah, I mean, there's a power in sharing your story with each other, right? I mean, you're, mm-hmm. have you met these people online? You've been talking forever. You're going there. The energy of these people who are alive, who are fighting, who are strong, who are right. determined are all together. And they're sharing that they're sharing individual stories together. And the right. power of doing that right now is just amazing. So I couldn't imagine having that times 400, 800 people. 800 how, women. How was cool crazy. that was. Alice had a lot of silicone that weekend. <laughs> uh, I still remember us saying that before we even got there. We were all like, Dallas, we'll never have this much silicone along one place. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I did not see that one coming, sorry. <laughs> so... So you're, you're getting into these groups, you're meeting these people and stuff, and how does that keep on evolving for you? So that, you know, I, I continued that with mm-hmm. the, you know, the online group and, and did for many years and still have, have um, those friends now are Facebook friends um, that, that I met. And then, um, but when I came back from that conference, I wanted to find a way to connect locally. Mm-hmm. And so Pink Ribbon Girls had what they called coffee talks. They met at a little coffee shop over in Westchester. And I started participating in that and, um, and making friends, again, meeting other women and, and also being able, then I, I saw what happened when I shared my story, right? Because now I was on the other side of it. And so when someone was newly diagnosed, you know, like, oh my God, I'm going to get the red devil. I'm terrified. I don't think I can do this. I think I need to quit my job. Right. Like, you don't have to quit your job. I, I work, you know, you modify your schedule. Right. You, you found then, and, and that feels good, right, to be able to encourage someone to be able to say, this is my journey. Um, and, you know, you don't tell them all, you know, like, I'm always kind of selective when I refer somebody to somebody else, right? You don't refer sure. them to the person that's like, oh, my God, my life sucked. I, you know. Right. Like, yeah. You find people that, that aren't going to sugarcoat it. Sure. But 
they can encourage people with their experience and with their story. So would you say for people who are maybe thinking about going to these, some of these coffee talks or these kind of uh, groups that they're more support talks, support stories instead of sob stories? Oh my gosh, yes. So with, with Pink River Girls, we, um, we do kind of jokingly say, number one, we don't drink coffee because that little shop closed. Um, <laughs> so now we meet in restaurants, um, we do cooking classes, and, and we say, you know, if you envision a support group as a bunch of women sitting around crying, let it come here once and see what really happens. That, right. that we are loving on each other, we are supporting each other, we're laughing. Um, you know, but if someone walks in that room and they have a question, you know, they might say, Hey, I'm considering this, Jan, do you know, you know, and I will look around that room and I will say like, hold on a second, let me introduce you to her. She had that procedure. You'll see the two of them kind of walk off, right? They may go in the bathroom because it might be, we need to see some scars, right? right. We need some reconstruction. Um, and that's the beauty of it. That is the mm -hmm. beauty of it, that this person came in with this apprehension and they leave that room feeling so loved and supported. And I can right. tell you, if they're on Facebook, by 11 o'clock that night, their Facebook's going to get blown up because all these women are going to want to connect with them and <laughs> love on them and support them virtually, too. That's um, awesome. As they're going through it. And I've met some of, of my greatest friends um, through that, through these uh, coffee talks. That's awesome. So tell me about your job now and how you got there, what you, what you do okay. specifically today. Yes. So with Pink Ribbon Girls, as I said, I, you know, first knew about them through the support group. And mm -hmm. then um, once I learned more about them, I wanted to get more involved and volunteer with fundraising. I had, um, after I did that first fundraising uh, breast cancer walk, um, I got more and more engaged and uh, we started having bigger teams, bigger teams and raising more money. And it just was something I, again, I just felt like I was supposed to do it. And so um, I was invited to sit on the board at first with Pink Ribbon Girls mm -hmm. and uh, did that. And then um, life just uh, kind of got a little weird in that the more I was spending time fundraising and volunteering, the more unhappy I became in my job. Um, I had uh, switched to another company mm -hmm. and... Um, and was miserable. I would drive up 71 sitting in rush hour traffic and I was crying again. Um, mm -hmm. probably talking to God, like I need to know, you know, what are we going to do about this? I, I know people need light fixtures, <laughs> but <laughs> I feel like there is something bigger in life that I'm supposed to do. Um, but I was terrified. How, how are we going to pay the bills? We had time right. getting ready to go to college. You know, I knew what my Heart wanted that um, in reading some things and reading some some things in the Bible I read about a servant's heart right and um, that just resonated with me and I felt like this is my purpose that that I believe I have a servant's heart mm -hmm. and not to serve electrical in the lighting industry right <laughs> and um, so um, I ended up in um, with my job and uh, again, I, I was very unhappy. They became unhappy. And uh, I was offered a severance package, which was mm -hmm. probably one of the hardest things that had ever happened in my life right. um, to go through that, that I kept saying, this is a wonderful thing, but, but boy, to be told, right, we're giving you a severance package due to reorganization or, mm -hmm. or whatever um, still was horrible. Right. Um, and so I had a choice to make. Was I going to try to take 29 years of experience in the lighting and electrical industry, replace my income, 
and, and find that job? Or was I going to try to find a job in the nonprofit world? And so, again, talked to Brett and said, you know, it barely works on paper, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but I'm going to ask Pink Ribbon Girls to hire me. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough for us, um, you know, uh, sure. to go to take that big of a cut in pay. Um, but I just feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. And uh, it worked. I talked them into hiring me, <laughs> and so um, it was part time in the beginning, and um, it just it just was what was supposed to happen. You know, we haven't lost our house, we haven't lost our cars. We mm -hmm. figured out a way to adjust our spending, and um, I don't think my kids are doing without. Right. Um, I hope that um, when they're older, they they can see that lesson, mm -hmm. right? Um, that we probably spent a little too freely. Um, and we had to, you know, buckle down a little bit and change the spending habits, but it was for a good thing. It was to serve a much bigger cause, right. a much greater purpose um, than us having a, you know, I, I drove my car for 200,000 miles for the first time, you know, last year. And I was so excited because um, <laughs> I'd never done that. But, you know, I'm like, those, I think those are good lessons for our kids, right? Sure. Uh, it's not all about money. And um, I don't ever, ever at the end of the day question you know, um, am I doing something good? Am I helping somebody else? Is sure. this what I'm supposed to be? I think going all the way back to walking those streets of Strawberry Hill and crying mm -hmm. um, and, and making that deal that I feel like that this is where I'm supposed to be. This right. is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so um, my title this year is um, Director of Community Engagement. So mm -hmm. I handle the peer support, the education, and then also um, do a lot with fundraising so uh, because mm -hmm. we have to have funds to be able to be able to serve our clients right I think it's amazing that you talked about that it's, it wasn't just about the money anymore you know and you were finally finding your passion I shared this quote with you on the phone the other day but it hits home when people talk about their passion and I'm passionate about what I do is that when you chase the money the money will run faster but when you chase your passion the money will chase you and it's not about the money but it's chasing that passion and when you do that you'll be okay the money will right. find you. You'll, you'll get there. You're going to be fulfilling so many things and filling so much more than a bank account. Um, let me ask you a couple of questions before we wrap up here today. And we talked earlier about there being a before and after Jan, you know, in that mm -hmm. moment you found out about the cancer. Would you go back and change anything if you had the opportunity to go back and not have this cancer oh, diagnosis? That's a really good question. I don't know that I would. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like I say, I, I try to look at some of like the things that I say are weird, you know, like the fact that I had this phobia of people mm -hmm. with cancer. But again, today that to me is a gift because when someone calls me and says, Jan, I want you to call my neighbor, Sue, she was just diagnosed. I instantly mm -hmm. say, I won't do that. And they're like, what? And I said, I want you to give her my phone number, my Facebook, my email and find out, does she want to connect to me? Mm -hmm. Right. And what is her comfort level? Does she want to talk in person? Does she want to? Sure. You know, there are women that I have supported that, that live two miles from me that I've never met in person because that's wow. not what they wanted, mm -hmm. right? Sure. They were comfortable by email. So that, again, I wouldn't change. As weird as that was, I wouldn't change that because I think that makes me better at my job today um, that I don't show up at someone's door with a big basket like, hi, I'm Jan and I'm a survivor <laughs> and you know, I'm here to support you. And they're like, ah, I have this fear of people with cancer get out of my house. Right. Um, so, so that was a gift. I think, um, you know, when I said I didn't want cancer to impact my kids' lives, um, 
that's what we thought was the right thing in the beginning. And mm -hmm. now, um, you know, my kids know far more people than they should that have cancer. They know the good and the bad of it, but All I right. hope in the end it makes them better people, that they're more compassionate. Um, I've always tried to involve them in the fundraising um, because I just firmly believe that we need to raise our children to know that you have got to take care of your community, right? Not everybody in a community has a family. Mm -hmm. And so your community becomes your family. And that's what this King's community was for us, that there is no way we could have gotten through what we did in those first couple of years if we did not have our, our King's community that, that loved on us and fed right. us and drove my kids and um, put garage doors up on zero days and zero degree right. days. So I'm guessing your answer is no, you wouldn't change anything based I, upon what I, you're doing. I, yeah. I'm going to think about it after we get done talking, but I, I can't think of anything. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you don't, wouldn't go back and think, Oh yeah, I want to go through that whole process again and feel horrible and all those things. But the things that you've been able to take away from that, the things you've learned and the opportunities you've had to impact so many lives, right? Right. Think about the stuff you wouldn't right now. You're not selling light bulbs and chandeliers to people. Um, you are impacting lives and you're thinking about it this way. You're shedding light in a whole different way. You know? <laughs> I've never thought about that. Oh, you're um, good. <laughs> well, see, I'm giving you all these great ideas today. I'm copywriting. You are. Oh. You know, some people, you'll see some people say um, cancer is a gift, and I always say, you will never hear me say that. Right. Um, I will say, have I received gifts from being diagnosed with cancer? Absolutely. You know, the people that it brought into my lives, the, um, the change in my life that it brought career-wise, um, there are definitely gifts that come along with it, but I would never say cancer is a gift. I, and I say, I hope someday I don't have this job um, because I hope there's no need for it. I hope there's no need for us to ship meals to people, for us to give rides to people. Um, right. Because cure for cancer. I would be totally fine with that. I'll find something else to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think the only gift cancer gave you was your life, your relationship right. with God and your family and all these people that you get to help. So right. I think that would be the gift in all of that. Right. Not necessarily the diagnosis, but. Correct. the growth and the strength afterwards. So the final question I ask everybody then, Jan, and I'm sure you have all kinds of answers for this since you do this all the time. What bit of hope and encouragement could you offer to someone who just today, they got that diagnosis and they are up in it and everything's running through their head. What could you offer them? Probably the most consistent message I give is um, one day at a time mm -hmm. that when you are given that news that you have cancer, it is so easy to run down that rabbit hole, right? And, and mm -hmm. like I did, think about your own funeral. Think about how, how your death would impact your kids. Um, what's that going to do financially to your family? Mm -hmm. All of those things that you can worry about, that's not going to change the path, right? right. The, the path is going to be set by the diagnosis, by the plan that you come up with with your doctor. And so try so hard to stay in the moment. Stay in today. When you get up today, only focus on what you can control and uh -huh. what you can think about today. Do not waste that energy. Don't lay in bed and worry, worry, worry about two years from now. I, I did that in the beginning. I, because of the data I read on, on the type of cancer I had in my head that I was going to live two years. Right. And so much of what I thought about was what, what's going to happen in these two years. And here I am 11 years later. So all of that time I spent worrying about that, that I had two years to uh -huh. live, right, did absolutely no good. It did not change the path at all. Um, and I probably could have spent that as quality time with my kids, with my friends, 
doing something far better than sitting around and worrying and mm -hmm. and it can be so overwhelming and so I just say try as hard as you can to take it one day at a time as trivial as that that saying is mm -hmm. um, it, it's a lot it's overwhelming and you can you can go down there but try 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 to keep it at one day at a time well that's awesome I don't think you could end it with any better advice than that. Jan, I wanted to thank you for being on the show, but before we go, if someone wants to connect with you after this and they hear your story, how can they get a hold of you? Sure. So um, you can, um, if someone needs our services, you know, part of doing this podcast, we hope is that, that people have learned more about Pink Ribbon Girls, that, you know, we provide um, meals, house cleaning, and rides, and peer support, which we've talked quite a bit, um, for free to anyone diagnosed with breast or even a gynecologic cancer. People think mm -hmm. of us only as breast cancer, but we serve men or women with breast and then any of the gynecologic cancers. Um, with that, if you know someone that can use our help, you can go on our website, pinkribbongirls.org, or you can email me, jan, at pinkribbongirls.org. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Jan Middleton. Um, you know, I have people contacting me um, a lot of different ways, and um, mm -hmm. we, we say no one travels this road alone is what we say at Pink Ribbon Girls. And so whether someone needs these meals or wants these meals it's not necessarily an economic issue our family absolutely could have used those services they didn't exist when I was diagnosed mm -hmm. uh, the, the direct services um, we could afford those things but it would have been nice for my kids right that I hadn't ordered uh, Pizza Hut or McDonald's as many times um, so mm -hmm. let someone help you connect with Pink Ribbon Girls because we don't ever want you to feel like you're traveling this journey alone that, that we want to be there for you. And, and there's people that want to be there for you. Okay. Well, thank you. I will, I'll do this. I'll take your information. I'll put it in the show notes for the podcast when it comes out. So everybody will have that information. So I just want to thank you one for being able to come on today and share your story, being vulnerable and for making such an impact in people's lives. That really makes a huge difference. Thank you. I appreciate that. Like I said, just, we, we have so many amazing people, I think, in this community that um, right. I just think you probably could do a podcast every day <laughs> in this community of, of the amazing people that, yeah. um, and, and we're just fortunate to live where we do, I think, and, and be able to connect with these people. Well, I would love to do a podcast every single day because I, the real mission of the podcast is to spread hope for people, and there is so much hope out there, and there's so many yes, there amazing is. stories of people. Um, to come through the other side and share that and come alongside people. So thank you so much for being here today. I can't wait for people to hear your message, be inspired, and maybe get involved in the Pink Ribbon Girls too and help the community around them. So We always need volunteers. Okay. All right. Hey, we well, always need a, volunteers. This is an all call from Jan for Pink Ribbon Girls. They need some volunteers. They need help. And, yes. Uh, and we'll do that. We'll put that all call out. So, again, thanks so much for being on the show today, Jan. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Jan, for coming on the show today and sharing your amazing, powerful story, a story that's left an impact just not in your own life, but like I talked about earlier in the show, in your community as well. After recording the podcast, I had so many different takeaways after listening to Jan share her story and her life, um, just talking about when she was first diagnosed, just how her life is separated into two different Jans that she spoke about on the podcast, or her day and her life flipped around on that day, not knowing she had this diagnosis, but knowing it was in her family, but being checked all the time. And to finally get that news that something was bad and that awful, it gets crippling. 
And in that crippling fear and agony of not knowing and waiting to have to find out where am I at in these stages they dictate between stage one and four, what does my plan look like? What does my future look like? How's this going to impact my marriage, my children? I'm sitting here thinking about planning my own funeral. All those things are going through her mind. And at the core of it, she had to trust God. And you hear her talking about her story, how she would put the kids down to go to bed. She'd go out walking in the neighborhood crying, pouring her heart out, walking into, running into people, them trying to comfort her on the street as she's just, you know, a total mess, completely upset. And she did and took that time that she remembers that she made this deal with God, that God, if you help me get through this, I will take it, I will pay it forward, and I will make a difference in people's lives. Now, let's be clear. God doesn't make deals. But I also want to be clear that God does make promises. And he promises us that if we trust in him, rely on him, believe in him, that he will come alongside us in our life. It doesn't mean he's always going to heal people. It doesn't mean everything's always going to be easy. But there is a big difference between walking alone and walking with God alongside of you. And I thought that was such an amazing part of her story, her sharing that. And, I mean, she didn't say, like, God spoke to her that night when she was in the neighborhood that, hey, I'm going to heal you. You're going to do all these great things. But she had faith. She had faith. And that makes all the difference in these type of situations when we're going through struggles and we feel alone and we feel isolated and we feel hopeless because we don't know what our future looks like. And I just appreciate her sharing that part of her story, how important that was. I also thought it was funny how when she knew she had cancer, was going to go through all these processes and things that she early on, she said, one, I do not want cancer to impact my life forever which is kind of funny now knowing what she does. And she shared that on the podcast. But also, I think that's important to realize in all of our lives that the things that we go through, we just see them as an isolated, traumatic experience, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be cancer. It could be any different things. And we don't want those to impact our lives. But when you take a second and think, the biggest gains that you've had, the biggest growth that you've had, is because of things that you've gone through, things that you've learned, things that you've experienced. But not only does it help you with your growth, it allows you to come along other people while they're in the middle of their storm. Because you've been through your storm, and you learned, and you grew, and you trusted, and you had faith, and you cried, and you failed, and you came through it. And now, here you are with this amazing story to share. I got a podcast on sharing it. It's about sharing it one-on-one with the people that matter the most in your life, the people in your community, and helping them along the way. So don't be afraid of your traumatic experiences, your storms today. Do not push them aside and say, I don't want this to impact my life. It's over. I'm done with it. I'm putting it in a box. It's done. Now, if you choose to do that, does that make you a bad person? Absolutely not. But I also don't want you to run from it either because there is strength, there is growth, and there is knowledge, and there's power in our story, in our experiences. And it's so important for you to share those and be brave with them and let other people know that they're not alone out there sharing those same struggles today. So this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I thought it was such an amazing time to be able to have Jan come on, share her story, and just gain awareness. Now, I think 
you'd have to be under a rock to not know about breast cancer awareness, you know, with the pink ribbons and the different walks and things like that. But I think it all sometimes gets washed out like white noise because you always hear so many things about all the different people who are going through different cancers and all the different walks and ribbons and funds and things like that. So I think it's important to have awareness for people to really just focus in on this one month. But there may be people who listen to this podcast and not be in October of 2018. Maybe it's July of 2019 and you're finally getting to this podcast that just because it's not Breast Cancer Awareness Month, it doesn't mean that the awareness doesn't mean as much just because it's not in this specific month. There's still a chance for you to get involved. There's still a chance for you to have early detection, things like that for women and men who it's a smaller percentage that have breast cancer, but it does happen as well to get out there, get checked and make sure that you're okay and get the early detection and maybe get that early intervention that you need. Also, we want to talk a little bit about Jan's Pink Ribbon Girls. And I, I love their website. So it's pinkribbongirls.org. And right on the front, they have no one travels this road alone. And I think that's so important, especially right now with breast cancer awareness. Because, and Jan talked about it, to be with those groups, especially when it was the middle of the night and she couldn't sleep and she thought she was going to die from all the stuff, she'd go on. She'd talk to people virtually and they'd be like, Jan, take it down. You're okay. Talk her through it. Because she knew then that she could not just bottle this up. She couldn't walk that road alone. It's a lonely, hard, dark road. And so I think it's amazing that Pink Ribbon Girls, that's their catchphrase. No one travels this road alone. And they have so much support, so many amazing things on the website to check out um, and different things. They talk about their mission and things that they offer. And one way you can donate to Pink Ribbon Girls, and I thought this was a real practical way to show people, because I think all the time in life, and especially I've done it, I've thrown money at different awareness groups, you know, different cancers and things of that nature. You really don't see how it impacts people. You're hoping it's going to impact people, but you really don't know. You don't see it. One of the things they have on their website for donation is a $96 donation feeds a family of four for one week. And I thought that was so cool that, you know, this $96, you're not just putting it into a website with your name on it. You know, this $96 is going to stay in your community. It's going to serve your friends and neighbors. You can make a difference. You can do that, and you know you're going to feed a family of four. I thought that was so cool, and I love when different foundations and organizations show practical ways to give. So it's not just a donate button, here's your amount of money, and it goes somewhere. You know it's going to go to your community and really make an impact. So I think that is so cool. So check out pinkribbongirls.org. Check out the area where you can volunteer, where you can donate, and just check out their mission, what they're all about. It's really amazing, and I, I really hope that through Jan coming on and sharing her story and you guys hearing it, that you can help get involved in your community as well and help make an impact in people's lives. Well, like Jan said on the podcast at the very end, her best advice is to take it one day at a time. And I know it's hard for us to do when we're going through trouble and we're up in the middle of it. And all we want to do is just seek that future, seek six months down the road, a year down the road and have things be better and and to get over it and to move past it. But when you're in the middle of it, your goal is just to win that day. Just like Jan said, one day at a time, one doctor appointment at a time, one diagnosis at a time, one win at a time. Everything that you can do just to stay one day at a time, stay in that moment, focus on you and your family and your faith and getting through that one day at a time 
building your own hope bridge from where you're at to where you want to be. So Jan, I can't thank you enough for being brave and being a survivor and a thriver in your community and making an impact on others. It's so important. And I can't thank you enough for being vulnerable and brave enough to come on here and share your story for so many people like you get to do individually. And I'm really grateful for that. So thank you for making that impact. It means so much. And I know the people listening really appreciate you doing that as well. Well, I can't thank you guys enough for listening today. And I really appreciate you guys being part of the community. And speaking of the community, check us out on Facebook at the Unwritten Life Podcast Group. That's where the conversation is going on during the week. And I'm posting different things going on with Unwritten Life. And I'd be grateful for you guys to stop in there and join the group. Also, check us out on Instagram, Unwritten Life Podcast is where I share photos of people who are being on the show and you get a chance to check them out there as well. We have unwrittenlifepodcast.com where the show notes are at. That's where our contact information is for our people who are on the podcast so you can reach out to them and show them that you appreciate their story or maybe get more information on how they can support you for the things that they've gone through as well. And if you are liking the show, it's making an impact on your life, share it, share it, share it, share it. And check us out on iTunes and leave a written review and a rating. And that helps other people see the show. And it means a lot to all of us. So if you could do that, that would be amazing. Well, we've come to the end of yet another episode. But this is not the end of your journey at the end of your life at all. Remember that you matter, you can make a difference, and that your story is still unwritten.